Welcome back to Entertainment Geekly. I am Entertainment Weekly senior writer Darren Franich, and I am speaking to former 90s sitcom star EW's Jeff Jensen. What sitcom was I on? Uh, you were on some joke about BoJack Horseman that I can't think about. <laughs> uh, let's see, on, on BoJack Horseman, it's called Horse It Around, so we'll call it Jensen Around? J- uh, yes. Just Jensening. Jensening. That, that sounds I, like I a like good that. sitcom title. As long as I'm collecting massive royalties from it as we speak, then I'm, I'm good with any title. Jeff, we're doing a deep dive into all the offerings that Netflix has coming up this month. I have seen quite a bit of the new season of BoJack Horseman. You've seen none of it. I have seen none of it. It, The BoJack Horseman is one of my pop culture television blind spots, I am ashamed to say. Jeff, we'll talk about BoJack a little later, but I want to save the meat of this podcast for a TV show you have seen, I believe, everything of, or at least everything that they've released so far. I have just seen a bit of it. It's the new Netflix series, Stranger Things. Yes. The only thing I think most people know about this, if they know about it at all, is that Winona Ryder is in it. Yeah. Basically, the broad strokes are this is a series meant to be an homage to a few different and intriguingly varied genre things from the early 80s. The setup is we are in a small town, a mysterious paranormal thing has gotten out. This paranormal thing is followed around by a a government-y looking scientist types who are all kind of wearing Peter Coyote clothes from E.T. Those hazmat kind of suits. Yes, yes. Like, 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 or in really bland, like, three-piece suits. Yeah, yes. I mean, this is like that crossover phase where scary government guys were either in gray flannel suits or they were in hazmat suits. That's they right. sort of like one <laughs> or the other. We are also kind of thrown into the midst of a, a group of kid heroes that uh, I think it's it's fair to say, like, you know, we r- r- call back to the E.T. kid squad. Uh, these are kids who play in their basement. We first meet them playing Dungeons and Dragons, which is a nice little touch. They love comic books. Their prized comic book is X-Men number 134, a key story in the Dark Phoenix saga. They're quoting Star Wars. They ride bikes at night with headlights flashing. It's very spielberg Yes, it feels very spielberg I don't want to spoil it too much, and also from what I've seen, I kind of can't spoil it. I've only seen the first two episodes, which to me feel like they're really mood-building, and one element of that mood, you reference Spielberg, and this is very much in that kind of Super 8 class of films, of, of uh, things that are really homaging Close Encounters to E.T. era Spielberg. There is also a very strong John Carpenter That's aspect right. to this show. You know, this this show is going to be fun. Like, for people who enjoy kind of spotting references in the background, there's been posters for The Thing in the first couple of episodes. Um, the music feels very John Carpenter's synth horror. Synthesizer, uh, very sure. In yeah. a way that I can really appreciate. And, um, like even the graphics, the, the the logo for the series itself, or even the chapter titles, the credits, um, they feel like they, they borrowed the font from every Stephen King novel yes, from the late yes. 70s and early 80s. And even some of the plot, you know, there's, there's lots of different kind of plot that's happening in the show. You have these young kid heroes that get caught up in this mystery involving the disappearance of one of their friends who seems to have been claimed by a mysterious monster that the weird scientists that work for the mysterious Department of Energy facility in this small Indiana 
town that no one questions, right? It's just this it's this thing that's hidden behind like wires and walls and it's just this thing that it's the government they do stuff there and no one really questions it, but they're doing some really freaky weird uh tests into like M Cultra ESP mind control stuff. I'm not spoiling anything for you. You've learned these things right away. So they get involved with the one of their own goes missing when he's abducted or or eaten, we don't know, by a mysterious creature. Meanwhile, there is a separate storyline involving the arrival of a young girl who is known only as Eleven. And that's her name. That's and she has a buzz cut, and she only answers in yes or no questions. And she's like right out of a Stephen King novel. I mean, she's Firestarter. She's Carrie. She's Marvel Girl from the X Men. Mm-hmm. She has special talents. She has special abilities. And the government wants to exploit her for various reasons. And the kids, her friend has gone missing. They end up kind of finding this girl, and she becomes a key in their efforts to investigate the disappearance of their friends. Meanwhile, there's another group of friends, another another group of kids, who are the older teenage uh, kids. And they're like every John Hughes 80s teen sex comedy movie, <laughs> uh, coming of age movie, boiled down to the essence. There's like... The, the, the bully rich kid, there's the, the virgin smarty girl, there's the arty outsider, and they're kind of locked in this kind of like drama, which turns into every teen slasher monster horror movie done in the 80s. And their storyline ultimately intersects with the kids and the girl and the missing boy. Don't forget about the sheriff. There's also and the then sheriff. there's a sheriff. There's the small town, like a grizzled, haunted sheriff. Who, who isn't quite buying all the strangeness at first. He's kind of a reluctant hero type, but but he's also a pretty stalwart character, and he starts investigating. Then we have the haggard, ragged, single mom, played by Winona Ryder, who's kind of right out of like Close Encounters or E.T., and she's the mother of the missing child, and she's obsessed with finding her kid. And the other major adult character in, in the show is Matthew Modine's sinister. He's the Peter Coyote figure from E.T., except that he's evil. Yeah, you he's, know? he almost seems to me like he is this kind of, if, if we're graphing this on just homages, he is almost to me this like real invasion of like cigarette-smoking madness yes. into the middle of this. That's you right. Know? Like, like, on some level, a lot of the stuff that it's referencing even the slasher films there was this sort of slight innocence or slight naivete about them and, and the Matthew Modine figure so far from what I've seen he feels a lot more like there's a real 90s cynicism to him right. in this way absolutely which is it's interesting as kind of contrast to a lot of the other stuff and happened. it's interesting you should say that because without spoiling anything this is a very dense synthesis as we've kind of already explained of 80s references but in some ways, the ending feels very 90s. Um, I detected maybe shades of the X-Files, detected shades of Twin Peaks, which made me wonder if like Stranger Things is going to end up being like the planetary of TV. Planetary, the comic book reference. Planetary being my favorite comic book ever, which is this, essentially this survey of comic book and geek culture references. It makes me wonder if like every season of Stranger Things... 
is ultimately going to be like a dense synthesis of a certain period of time of pop culture. So if season one is about the 80s, maybe season two is about the 90s. You mentioning Planetary, people listening couldn't see this, but my head exploded. Yes. Because I, I love Planetary. This is, of course, the comic book by Warren Ellis. And one of the things that's interesting about that, Planetary very specifically took all these superhero types. Right. Very clearly and very explicitly. And you had your Fantastic Four archetypes and your kind of DC hero archetypes and all of this with the very kind of Warren Ellis-y take on flipping them completely. And so very Fantastic Four was very evil and, and very malevolent, and there was always some interesting, you know, some 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 intrinsic downside, if not an outright, you know, um, just menace to a lot of the more heroic archetypes we, we've become accustomed to. And what's interesting is, for this show to be that, it needs to be not just a fun homage, which from what I've seen, it very much is. If you are the kind of person where the itch very easily gets scratched just by kind of, you know, synthesizing or music that, that that occasionally would just come in and almost kind of overwhelm dialogue scenes. Like, like if I am very much that kind of person. Like this does that. But you're saying that as it goes along, there's almost a more thoughtful level to how they're using all of this pastiche. Or I'm saying that I see potential for that. I see. I see elements of what we might call genre commentary in in some of the outcomes of things in this season. But I don't think it quite reaches that. And I would say this is a failing of the first season of the show. I mean, look, I think that there are fewer things on television that are more entertainment geekly than Stranger Things <laughs> right now. In the sense of like, it seems built out of every of a lot of things that we've loved and were raised on. But my problem with the show, one of them is that it does suffer from the Netflix phenomenon of drag. It launches <laughs> like gangbusters. And then there's a part of the season that drags. Usually in every uh, Netflix show that happens about the middle. Here it happens actually in the beginning. Like episode, the first episode is great. Episodes two, three, and most of four feel like they're running in place. There's a moment in episode four, though, that is super cool. And uh, let's just say it involves human taxidermy and that it kind of supercharges the mystery. And then from episodes four through seven, it really gathers momentum. As these Why'd you have to tell me this? I was uh, so ready just to give up on this right. show. <laughs> as, as, as different storylines in this show begin to sort of finally converge rather organically and, and, and impressively, the finale... The finale is good. The finale is good. I think that I, I think there's there's parts of it I kind of struggled with, and it has all of these cliffhanger codas that are I think that make things confusing. That I think are more designed to set up a sequel. So my my summary statement would be is I kept on wanting it to transcend its own influences. Yes, yes, it's borrowing from Carpenter. It's borrowing from King. It's borrowing from Spielberg and sound and images and stories and themes. And I kept on wanting it to sort of like say, okay, then we're we're gonna delight in these influences. We're gonna be really aggressive about these influences, and we're gonna take all these influences and we're gonna make a unique statement on their own. And I think it doesn't quite succeed uh, in two big areas. One is, as much as it cribs and quotes style and and and, and motifs, 
you actually wanted to do either more or less. Right, right. Um, you sort of wanted to be either very explicit in the way that planetary, or I am a big devotee, even though it can get like really too far up its own whatever, but like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, right. Alan Moore's idea there is I will just overwhelm you with reference until you kind of, you, you were so enraptured in this world built from other worlds. Right. And, but there are moments where it's kind of like, all right, like, I'm kind of in this world, and all you're kind of doing is making me feel like I'd rather go and watch E.T. Right. Or I'd rather go and watch, you know, Assault on Precinct 13. Right. Or one of those kind of great carpenters. It takes all of these influences and creates a house style with it, and then it executes every episode with that house style. Versus maybe something that I was expecting that might be more interesting but maybe could could bring some flaws to it too, which is that every episode is some kind of big high concept homage to this one thing and make that um, that specific homage a source of entertainment unto itself. Instead, like I said, it takes all these influences, synthesizes them, and turns it into a house style that is pleasing, but ultimately the novelty of it kind of wears out so that all you're left with by the middle of the uh, middle of the season is just the story that they're telling. Right. And it's an entertaining story, and it's pretty well told. It does remind you of a lot of other things that might be a little bit better. Let me yeah. ask you this too, Jeff, because... One thing that I found really interesting about Stranger Things, you know, there's been this kind of... You can't even really say it's a movement because it's yeah. happened in a lot of strange corners of filmmaking. But there is this interesting, very specific 80s nostalgia. Now, 80s nostalgia has been a thing maybe since the 80s ended. And it feels like, you know, what's happened in the last few years, which I found really interesting, is, you know, you've had films like Attack the Block and Super 8 and uh, the... It Follows. And, and, and It Follows. Midnight Special. And, and Midnight Special. And even, you know, uh, The Guest and You're Next, which are movies that feel, by various turns, very explicitly uh, in homage to Steven Spielberg and John Carpenter, and in a more kind of implicit way. I mean, It Follows... There is an element of slasherness to that movie, but what it does with that kind of suburban setting, what it does with the colors, what it does with a, a, a soundscape that feels very 1980s, it does something very, very unique with it. And it, it seems to be, it functions on its own. If you want to, you can really view something like It Follows as an interesting kind of commentary. I mean, you know, it is a kind of literalizing of the sexual politics of slasher films. The, the mm. idea that this is a sort of, you know, viral infection haunting that, you know, follows people having sex w with each other. Yeah, with those movies that you cited, every generation that takes over Hollywood ultimately rehearses and tries to revive their own childhood and plays out their nostalgia for things. You know, when I was a kid in the 80s, it was all these baby boomers that were looking to the 50s and 60s and telling stories from that period or even in that style. I remember Robert Zemeckis doing his ode to Beatlemania with I Want to Hold Your Hand, right? Even Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas is like just an homage to the stuff of their childhood. Yeah, so Star now, Wars too, yeah. Yeah. So now we have this this Gen X generation of filmmakers that are firmly in control of Hollywood and what are they doing? They're rehashing and they're recycling and they're playing with the stories of their childhood. What strikes me a little bit is I sort of said the 80s or the new 50s which is a very glib thing to say but also, you know, 
there was a point in the 80s when I think you had this real nostalgia for the 50s, and it was a specific kind of 50s. It was not Joseph McCarthy's 50s. It was <laughs> sort of like the 50s of media. It was the 50s of Leave it to Beaver, and right. this really kind of idealized vision of the past, which at a certain point is the only kind of vision of the past that ever maintains. And I do feel like... I wonder if with filmmakers of a certain age or just of a certain temperament, this show is set in 1983, and you can really say this is sort of like the beginning of the end or the very last point before anything digital would ever happen. There's something really lovely in the opening scenes of Stranger Things where it's like, here's a bunch of kids, they're hanging out together, they're playing a game that requires imagination and a single, you know, little action figures, no video games, no cell phones, no nothing. Then they go off and bike through dark streets and then one of the kids gets home and there's someone in his house and so he pulls out a gun. Like, these are all things that just you can't imagine. The world feels more sanitized now in a way. And that feels like a certain nostalgic vision that is palpable, you know? I mean, like, I, I think there is a, a beauty to that, even if it is ultimately to me. I mean, you're kind of saying that it sounds like the show is maybe about the end of that world, which that that makes Stranger Things sound more interesting than just kind of being this kind of, ah, weren't, weren't things better when kids like got on their bikes and and biked around outside. I have to admit that when I watched it, I didn't necessarily think about that angle, but you're absolutely right. And you know what's really interesting? You're absolutely onto something because, spoiler alert, part of the end of the film is... The The end of the show. The end of the show, the end of the season, it takes place on Christmas. And the big thing that the kids are waiting to get is an Atari. Oh, fascinating. So yeah, you're right. There is this kind of like steeped into this this show, a nostalgia for a time before everything was digital. Everything was connected. To go along with that, I mean, Matt Duffer and Ross Duffer who were the kind of filmmakers behind this. I feel like one thing they took from Spielberg that's easy to overlook is like their kid casting. I found oh, it yeah. really strong. So this thing is superbly cast. Yeah. It's I mean, very it's, well done. I, I mean, like the, the kids all have have that feeling of real kids and one of them is sort of like is missing all of his front teeth yes. and you know even just like the way they interact because this is Netflix they can talk in the gross way that little boys used to that's in, right in Spielberg it's definitely movies. a slightly a gross way but a, a little more of an R-rated way than right. like the, the kids right. than Spielberg movies could exactly yeah I mean and, and you know that stuff uh, you know to me that to me that speaks to understanding more than just like the bare outline of what made Spielberg stuff so good I gotta say too man Netflix's like music budget is crazy. Jeff, like in the oh, first two yeah. episodes, they had White Rabbit, they had Africa by Toto, they had Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash, they had uh, I Melt with You by Modern English, and they had a version of Hazy Shade of Winter, uh, the the Simon and Garfield. I mean, then, it was it was really I was just kind of like I mean this is already my my favorite soundtrack of a TV show in a really long. The time. music cue that for me sums up so much of the show is. Uh, Joy Division's Atmosphere. No way. They yeah. do Atmosphere? They do Atmosphere. Oh, my God. In, in a show that's all about 80s atmosphere and the joy <laughs> of, 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 of 80s pop culture, I thought it was pretty perfect. Here's one more thing I want to ask you about, Jeff. Since, since you've now seen all of this, I, I have a Netflix problem. I phrase that to mean this is my problem, this is not Netflix's problem. But since House of Cards which I watched two episodes of and basically gave up halfway. I gave up halfway through the second episode. And the reason is 
there is something about how Netflix generally makes their shows. This is true of Daredevil 2, which I, I watched all the first season and felt very disappointed and kind of gave up on, on the second season quite quickly. There's a way they have of making their shows where if you just watch one episode, you want to say, like, that has a cinematic quality to it that feels really great you know and like and cinematic can mean anything but specifically you know just there's a little more to it than i get from the typical tv show it feels like they've really thought through the palette they've really thought out some clever ways of of, of shooting things and then for some reason the second episode of their shows always feels so samey to me that i'm always kind of like oh this is actually kind of depressing. But there's a funny quality to Netflix shows in general, and there's a few that aren't like this, which we'll get to in a second, where there is a way of describing good television as it feels like a movie every week. It feels like a mini-movie. It feels like, like Sopranos, you'd end each episode and you would just be like, oh, like in that 50-minute period, I intook so much stuff. And, you know... I don't necessarily want to watch another one now. I'm happy with a week off because that was just so much to take, whether it was a psychological story, you know, whether it was a comical story. And there's something about Netflix where it feels more to me like they're just slow movies, you know? Right. Like, like, and what you're saying about it, the fact that it's it almost feels like episodes one through four are this weirdly overlong act one until we get to the good stuff. And I'm not quite sure how to fix that or if Netflix even really wants to fix that. It's like it's it's an approach that they have with all of their dramas, which is the focus is not on creating this standalone hour of television that can be the most complete and best thing that's ever been made. Like you felt like the Sopranos or some of the other great um, prestigious dramas of recent years or or historically set out to do what is just a completely satisfying well realized well shot well written complete story now on Netflix it seems that every episode is a chapter and a story and everything is building towards some kind of end game and you always feel with like a lot of the Netflix shows that they don't have enough story to fill a whole season. They're like contractually obligated to have a certain number of episodes that of anywhere of length of like eight to 13, but they only have enough story really for like four to eight. Yes, yes, yes. It's like when you watch, like like there was that moment where every movie on DVD was getting a director's cut and you were always kind of like, well, boy, oh boy, like I've seen the Blade Runner director's cut. That's way better. These will all be so much better. And then some of them you were just like, oh no, like that that five minutes didn't need to be in the movie. Like like it turns out Ridley Scott's Hannibal didn't need a director's cut because right. that that was just sort of extraneous or you know just because you are able to film an, a, another whole episode of the kids sort of you know going out and there were so many scenes in the second episode of them just searching for the kid and not yeah. getting anywhere and I was just kind of like this is this feels like it's kind of drifting off course. A you little you bit. got the sense that like with Stranger Things. And like a lot of Netflix shows, they look at, okay, how many episodes do we have? Then like they, they plant these flags for their major plot points and plot events of the season. And then they just vamp to get to yes. one or the other. You yes. Know? And, and I mean, in fairness, you know, there are good TV shows that are doing this also. I, I mean, you know, on, on basic cable... 
I think you could make the case that Better Call Saul is an example of that vamping run amok. Where uh, after two seasons, I'm 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 not totally convinced Better Call Saul is a real show yet. So much <laughs> as it is, I mean, you know, so much as it is just like a laboratory for wildly talented people in front of and behind the camera. Where like they sort of know where it's all ending, and we know where it's ending. I, I maybe there's someone out there who didn't watch Breaking Bad who's watching Better Call Saul. I, I kind of can't believe that. I feel like on both sides of the divide. This is something where we know what the end game is. But, but, along the but way, I would say Better Call Saul is better. Oh, uh, oh yeah, no, no, it like, is. No, no. Every episode of Better Call Saul seems to be like a deeply considered meditation on its two main characters, as well as a triumph of mood. Right, well, yeah. You know? but, but even even the episodes that are just mood, I mean, frankly, like Mike's stuff in season two, I, I, you could make the case that was just all mood setting, or even just them kind of being like, all right, we've done a lot of lawyer stuff, could we do some? But it was it was well done, and it was always, you know, it told these little individual stories, even if the only story in one episode was Mike watching the gangsters from afar planning something. And, right. And, th- like, Stranger Things, which does a lot of things quite well, it feels... It feels oddly locked into its plot in a strange yeah. way. And so actually, like, my favorite moments in the second episode, which again, I, I, I'm i glad to hear it gets better because I was almost kind of out on it after the second episode. My favorite moments were sort of like the, the high school kids hanging out and having a little party. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> right. okay, we're, right. we're kind of taking a breath here. The worst moments to me are when the boy who goes missing in the first episode, every five minutes someone just says, like, where is he? You know, let's go. And those are the parts that feel very, you know, the show almost feels seem to think that it's on this path it has to follow. While we're kind of like talking specifically about Netflix, there's another category of Netflix shows that I think are actually more artistically successful and almost always satisfying, at least the best ones, which is their sitcoms. Mm -hmm. You know, like Lady Dynamite is... I have issues with Lady Dynamite, um, but it it is... gloriously zany and inventive and dense and every episode tries to satisfy even more so my I think maybe my favorite comedy on television Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt which I think the second season is even better than the first and you just kind of feel like every episode the writers and directors and actors are coming together to say can we just make this the craziest most yes. entertaining thing possible like the, the, than we did last well, week the, the first netflix comedy that most of us watched was arrested development which yes in its fourth season some great things some real problems to me the main problem was like i think it was episode two or episode three was like 40 minutes long and, and you just you just had this weird feeling of wow here was a show that was so jam-packed at 22 minutes that now feels so flabby when it's twice that length. What I really admired was that was an attempt to do something very aggressively, which is to write to the binge model and binge viewing dynamics of Netflix. This idea of like, well, why write like a a traditional sitcom for Netflix where every episode is a self-contained thing? Instead, like those writers decided to turn those like what, 13 episodes into this really intricately structured, interconnected um, novel format, like way too intricate, way too complex, (laughs) like where they're willing to sacrifice the entertainment value of the second episode or third episodes, which may may the first six episodes, <laughs> which may may not make any sense, in order to set up 
huge narrative payoffs down the road. Yeah. Um, and so that when you go back and rewatch it again, if you do that, maybe those first six episodes are more entertaining. I admired that ambition. And that was something that was very new and very experimental and maybe had to be done for this form. I, I, think I, I give it up for those writers yeah. who are actually trying to do something different. What I would say about that season of, of, of Arrested Development is that it was not successful at what it wanted to be. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of whether, you know, it, it didn't satisfy the way that Arrested Development always satisfied and it didn't satisfy, it wasn't successful at what it wanted to be. But what I really want to defend is what they tried to do. Yeah. I think what they tried to do was really interesting and really artful and really important and like you, you need like fail ambitious failures like that to inspire other people to do it better i would say that the second season of unbreakable kimmy schmidt which you know the first season of unbreakable kimmy schmidt was written for broadcast network it was supposed to be like a conventional work it was you know every episode for the first six episodes at least were written and produced at like 24 to 26 minutes they were tight they weren't interconnected. They had very loose serialization. Um, around the episode six, I believe, they understood that they were moving to Netflix. They get a little bit longer. They try to go for more episode arcs. But it's really where episode two, where they try to do both things at once. How can we create a gonzo half hour of television? But how can we tell like a season long storyline of, of, of character development and character arcs that really pay off? And I would say that like that's the season of second season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is maybe the most successful season of Netflix sitcom season ever, period, you know? But I think it was set up by the experimentation of that season of Arrested Development because I'm sure that those, everyone can now look at them and kind of say, I love what they tried to do. How can we make it better? Yeah. Season three of BoJack Horseman, which debuts later this month, um, I am about halfway through it. I think it is the best season of a sitcom that I have seen since maybe like Community's third or fifth season. Wow. Now, what I make that reference quite specifically. BoJack Horseman, just broad strokes here, because I believe you've seen one episode of it. Right? That's true. So I watched one episode of BoJack Horseman when it came on, as with a lot of Netflix things, you know, I sort of lazily turned on Netflix one day, saw this new thing that Netflix was pushing towards me, couldn't help but just sort of, like, tap on it just to get just to get it out of my face. Uh, <laughs> BoJack Horseman Season 1 quickly introduces you to the lead character. We're in a world where animals are basically humans, and there's also humans, and they all kind of hang out together, and how that plays out. Occasionally, there is metaphorical resonance to it, but usually there's not. Uh, BoJack Horseman, as voiced by Will Arnett, is a form kind of like 80s and 90s sitcom star. He's been living a very kind of layabout lifestyle up in the Hollywood Hills ever since then. When we first meet him, he is kind of trying to get his career back on track. We quickly meet the sort of ensemble of people around him. He has a wacky, drugged-out roommate, voiced by Aaron Paul. Uh, the woman who is writing his memoir is voiced by uh, Alison Brie. Uh, he also has a kind, of a kind of loathed nemesis who thinks he's his best friend. Mr. Peanut Butter, who um, 
Bojack Horseman was on a TV show called Horsin' Around. He was basically like Penguin Mr. Cooper. He was basically like that, but with a with a horse in, in, instead of instead of Mr. Cooper. Mr. Peanut Butter we gleaned was on an almost identical show where the twist was that it and what, it's a what dog. is Mr. Peanut Butter? He's he's a dog. He's a dog. Oh, he's a dog. Okay. Um, and uh, so but, he's but, not like a jar of peanut. No, butter. no, no. He's he, he's not. There's. It, it's 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 not that absurd, although it gets there. Um, if you watch just the first two episodes of this show, here's what you might think about it. You might think this is a kind of send up of '90s sitcom cliches, and this is a showbiz satire. Two things that you know I, I wouldn't necessarily say would seem to have a lot of long term resonance. Now, by the end of BoJack Horseman season one, what you find out is that the show is actually up to something really quite remarkable, which is that it is sort of using, in this very interesting way, it is using on an episode-by-episode basis the kind of structure of 90s sitcoms, this very kind of like, you know, act one, a problem is introduced. Very often it's a problem that, you know, characters need to sort of, uh, you know, get into a caper to try and solve. Um, You know, it's all kind of resolved with a kind of mess the twist being that on BoJack Horseman, the message is often itself quite twisted. You come to find out that all these characters are all quite damaged in a way the show takes quite seriously. At the same time, its sort of portrayal of its Hollywood becomes very dense on a kind of, uh, you know, season three of Battlestar Galactica world-building level. <laughs> um, you know, this is, this is a show that if it introduces the idea that BoJack Horseman had a failed, uh, like, mid-2000s sitcom come back expect that little piece of information to come back a couple seasons later in a way that gives the show this weird I'm trying to think of another, of another show that has done this where without necessarily being supernatural at all the show has an internal mythology that uh-huh. you can really follow I guess in a way what it recalls is that Friends had a mythology in this, own, in this strange way that we would never you know we would never term it that but there was this sort of richer world in in, in those almost serialized sitcoms by, you t- by the time you get to season three many things have changed Bojack is now starring in a movie with the possibility of you know essentially a second act in his career um, and episode by episode what I've seen this season, Jeff, is remarkable. There is a season that flashes back to the mid-2000s that is almost like it is so dense with jokes about the mid 2000s that it is like the Simpsons uh, sideshow Bob uh, rake joke where <laughs> it's funny and then annoying and then just the sheer density of it kind of becomes a, a little bit remarkable um, th- by this season there are things they are doing with animation that are really remarkable They're, the visual storytelling is really remarkable and what I find really interesting and why I think I, I think I've become an advocate for it is the show is doing something really tricky, and I can't think of another show that's quite done this, where it is so completely a, a, a show business satire. There was a key plot line in season two where uh, the character Todd, who is sort of like the wacky roommate, voiced again by Aaron Paul, who's doing fantastic work, he's kind of like like in a lost moment, and you almost think he's going to go join the Church of Scientology. But then instead he joins an improv team. Like, he, he basically joins, like... Uh, the show's version of, of UCB mm. but its version of UCB is basically just Scientology and it's it's very kind of like this is a joke that only people who care about comedy would get this idea of kind of improv people being this sort of this cult unto themselves <laughs> there's a lot of really dense uh, you know if you if you're the kind of person who trolls through IMDB and Entertainment Weekly there's just dense dense references 
But in the character of BoJack Horseman, who, you know, we're told constantly that, like, here was someone who was so famous and so at his best in the early 90s with this TV show that was very sanitized. You know, we're talking, like, a, a, a lovable kids and family values, who has now just become such a kind of corroded version of himself. It somehow uses show business and the idea of celebrity in this very potent way that I think I've only seen in Sofia Coppola movies, where celebrity almost becomes this metaphor for just being, and for, you know, wanting to be more famous means wanting more people to care about you, Mm. and somehow also, you know, wanting to get more famous is also a way of being self-defeating in this really interesting way. I'm kind of particularly inclined to, to like, animation, so I think that's one reason why I gravitate to it so much, but it's, it's really interesting, and... It sort of does to the family sitcom what Sopranos was also doing to that kind of family sitcom setup, where it's kind of, you know, if you just take the kind of archetypes of it, then, you know, you kind of have Tony as this very Archie Bunker or even Jackie Gleason type, but then you take that character seriously and make him a mobster, obviously. So there's a lot happening. Does any of this sound interesting to you? (laughs) So it's about a horse? It is about a horse. Um, Will Arnett is great in it. It sounds like this has been a show that in in my time as a critic here at EW has been watched by my other partners in this critic job and has been advocated and championed by others here. And it's always been one that I was like, okay, like I'm glad we're covering it. I'll get to it some other time. It sounds like this is the season that I really need to. I think you'll like it because, I mean, the other thing that can frustrate me sometimes with a lot of TV shows now, it's not just Netflix, but I do think it's the Netflix effect, is when a show... It seems to me like there was a time where if a show was on for long enough, the people involved would, would kind of say, all right, like, we've laid down a base, now it's time to really experiment and, and to get really weird and, and to do some interesting things with this setup that we have. And so often now it seems to me like when a show kind of all needs to be one ongoing story, it can kind of defeat that. Everything can feel a little bit samey. And, you know, even with shows that I love, like Game of Thrones is a good example. Like, you know, season five doesn't necessarily feel that different from season one. It's just kind of bigger. And this season, it is telling an ongoing story, but it is also capable of doing a flashback episode or a experimental dialogue-free episode. And I think that's that's what I like in television, I think. And it's, it's nice to see that Netflix is doing that while also creating Bloodline, where two things happen in 12 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds fantastic. And in terms of the two shows that we've talked about in this podcast, the the kind of homage, the kind of pop culture referencing that is done in BoJack Horseman is the kind of thing that I am more attracted to, which is it's critiquing, it's it's having fun with culture, but it's using these references and it's using these homages and parodies in a really kind of creative, idiosyncratic way to make a really kind of singular artistic statement. Yeah, yeah. We want to get to, like, what comics were doing in the 80s and and maybe kind of get past this phase we're in of doing what comics were doing in the 90s. Right, yes, exactly. (laughs) So, Jeff, I guess we like Netflix. I guess Netflix is interesting. Netflix is interesting, uh huh? Netflix does good TV. And and we haven't even talked about the Ashton Kutcher show yet. I mean, imagine what will happen when we finally find time for that on this show. (laughs) Uh, My gosh, and I reviewed it, and I've already forgotten what the name of the, of the show was it, it's on, yeah it's him and danny masterson and uh sam elliott and deborah winger and the ranch the, the ranch ranch, <laughs> ranch which is surprisingly good like i like the ranch uh, i didn't love the ranch i like the ranch yeah the ranch is like this attempt to do is netflix's attempt to do 
a CBS style sitcom in the in the Chuck Lorre style, but with a little bit of streaming Netflix edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's more, more edge than Chuck Lorre, you say? <laughs> well, yeah, like well, like <laughs> you made me laugh there. Like by edgy, <laughs> what I really mean is all of the Randy double entendre, like uh, cornball, risque Chuck Lorre stuff. But with F words, mm-hmm. you know, Ooh, okay. yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's the rare kind of like three camera sitcom kind of thing where you actually see actors uh, deliver uh, um, a, a, a baby calf on screen. That's something. <laughs> and who said the golden age of television is over? Right. We'll talk more about Stranger Things. I will finish it. It sounds like there's a lot to discuss. People can tweet at us. You're on Twitter at EWDocJensen. I'm on Twitter at Darren Franich. People want to, like, email us. They, can, they should email me at Darren underscore Franich at EW.com. We'll be back. And we have Comic-Con coming up. How fun that'll be. We have Comic-Con. We have Mr. Robot to talk about. Oh, I can't wait. We'll talk about that next week. All right. I'm stoked. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.